We come now to Ruth chapter 4, finishing out our series in this stunning book. If this is your first time joining us in the book of Ruth, and you're not familiar with the story, it's an incredible story in the Old Testament. It takes place more than a thousand years before Jesus Christ was born, and it tells the story of a woman named Ruth who wasn't a part of God's people, the Israelites. She was a part of a foreign nation called the Moabites. And and, uh, Ruth married through, through uh, some surprising circumstances. Ruth married an Israelite man only to find that that man and his brother and his father all passed away. Three men passed away in a foreign land. Three women left widowed in a foreign land. And Ruth boldly and faithfully returned with her widowed mother-in-law to the land of Israel where she worked hard to provide for her mother-in-law, and where God graciously, bountifully provided for Ruth by providing a new husband for her, a man named Boaz, who committed to defend Ruth and provide for Ruth in a culture where women frequently were not provided for and widowed women were left alone and destitute. Not so with Ruth. Boaz married her, brought her into his fold, committed to provide for her, and committed to preserve the family line of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. And so that's the stunning story of the book of Ruth. And then at the end of the book of Ruth, we find an interesting epilogue of four verses, and that's where we'll be today. Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for every word of the Bible. Pray that it would bear great fruit as we look to it today. It's for your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, This week, on Tuesday, we'll celebrate one of the greatest American holidays, which is Election Day. Just kidding, it's not a holiday. Uh, And some of you are like, what, Election Day? I thought that wasn't until two years from now. This is the midterm elections. And because they're the midterm elections, the election that takes place to elect congressmen and women in between the presidential elections, there hasn't been a lot of chatter about it. Every year, the mid- or every, every uh, four years, the midterm elections come around, and they don't get a lot of attention in the press. They don't get a lot of attention from the public. There will be a few high-profile Senate races every time uh, that this run- runs around, uh, but generally, there's not a lot of attention given to the midterm elections. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that is? Because our, our country has this hyper-focus on the president. And presidential elections are so exciting because we have these two people, these two heroes, pitted against each other in a battle for the soul of the nation. And it's really interesting to watch, right? Sometimes it gets even more and more interesting every time around. I think that our country is so fixated on presidential elections, even though the president can't do anything without the midterm elections, some cycles, 
But I think our, our nation is so interested in the president because it is an important role, but also because I think deep down inside of us, we're looking for a hero who can make everything right. We're looking for a singular hero who can rule with perfect justice, who won't be controlled or stymied by interests or selfishness, but would bring about peace and justice. We're looking for a hero. And friends, that hero has been provided for us. And he's not a president, he's a king. And his name is Jesus Christ. And Jesus came to rule and reign with perfect peace and justice as a king. A king who sits on a throne, a king who rules with authority, and yet a king who doesn't use that authority for his own advantage, but lays it down for our good. Some of you are thinking, how on earth is he going to get that out of this list of names? Stick with me, friends. It's going to be a wild ride. We've been looking over the last few weeks at the book of Ruth. And in the book of Ruth, we've seen that God is able to bring hope into the most hopeless of situations. And he's able to do that in the most extreme way in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. And the entire book of Ruth has been bringing us to that point, pointing us forward to the coming of Jesus, even though this book was, was uh, the events of this book took place almost 1,500 years before Jesus was even born. Because God has always had the plan to save a people for himself by sending King Jesus into the world. That's always been plan A. And we come to the epilogue of this book, and we see that a story about a family line in crisis, women left widowed without descendants to provide for them or preserve the family line, and that story about a family line in crisis ends with a list of their descendants. It's absolutely stunning and unthinkable. If you were to read the first chapter of Ruth's book and see the hopeless situation that that Ruth and Naomi were left in and then skip to the end and read the epilogue, you would be wondering, how on earth did they get here? How on earth are they talking about descendants? And so we come now to this epilogue. A genealogy, a list of names, a family tree. And friends, often when we come to this kind of passage in the Bible, we skip over them. Or at the very least, we skim them and aka pretend to read them. But often the passages of Scripture that we're most tempted to just gloss over quickly are actually the passages that we need to really dive down deep into to get any helpful food out of. So that's what we're going to do today, friends. We're going to look at this genealogy, and I hope that in so doing, you would find hope in the risen Lord Jesus, the King of Kings, and also that you would be equipped with some tools. What does it look like to actually read these things when you come to them in your own Bible reading? So this genealogy at the end of the book of Ruth is placed here to show us the application of this entire story. And what I mean by that is that the book of Ruth 
has been placed in your Bibles to tell you and to remind you that God's grace is able to break through the most unlikely of circumstances. God's grace is able to break through the most unlikely of circumstances. Those words are very intentional. You'll find out why in just a minute. So the passage begins, now these are the generations of Perez. So typically when you come to these genealogies in the Bible, they start exactly like this. Now these are the generations of, and then they'll, they'll state the name of a father, a patriarchal head who, who was the leader of that family. And, and so with Ruth's genealogy, they traced it a couple generations back to this guy named Perez. Now why would they do that? Anytime that something previously in Scripture is mentioned in a passage, it's intentional. It's intentional. And, and so the author of Ruth starts the genealogy here because he or she wants to call to mind something about the story of Perez. And now who's Perez? Now he's got a really interesting story. Parents, you might want to earmuff your kids for this one. The story of Perez is found in Genesis 38, and it's a wild one, guys. Let's read it together to see this story of Perez and what on earth is God doing starting this genealogy with the story of Perez. Genesis 38. And Judah, that's the, the grandson of Abraham, the father of Israel, and Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur... Judah's firstborn was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Tamar marries Ur, the son of Judah, the firstborn son of Judah, and then he dies. Ruth is left a widow, and the family line of Judah is suddenly in crisis. There's no one to preserve the family line. There's no one to preserve the legacy. There's no one to preserve the name of Judah. Skip a couple verses down. But by the way, before we do that, does that story sound familiar so far? A woman, married, her husband dies, she's left as a childless widow. There's no child to provide for the woman. There's no child to preserve the man's family line. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's similar to the book of Ruth. And even the practice of of leveret marriage by which when a woman was left widowed, she would be passed to her husband's brother to preserve the family line. In Ruth's, or in Tamar's situation, that marriage custom was denied to her twice. The first brother refuses. The second brother is just a little kid at the time, and Judah's like, hang on, just wait on him. He'll grow up, be a fine husband for you one day. So she, she waits. He grows up. He doesn't become her husband. Judah sins against Tamar. He he leaves her destitute and alone. He says, I don't care about you, woman. And so Tamar is left in a hopeless situation. But friends, God is able to bring hope into the most hopeless of situations. Verse 13, and when Tamar was told, your father-in-law, that's Judah, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. He's going away on a work trip. She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Inaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, that's the, the, the third-born son, who, who Tamar was supposed to get as a husband to provide for her, 
He was refused to her, even though he'd grown up. She had not been given to him in marriage. Verse 15, when Judas saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Tamar, acting in deception, takes off her widow's garments, which at this point she's been wearing them for years. She's been walking around as a living monument of her own grief. Maybe some of you feel like that today. You've been walking under a cloud of grief and despair for years or decades. Is God able to bring hope into a hopeless situation like that or a hopeless situation like this? And and Tamar finally sheds her widow's garments and she dresses herself up like a prostitute. Verse 16, he... It's Judah, her father-in-law, turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. He just makes a demand of her, throwing her away like she's garbage. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. So, so he's saying, I'll pay you for your services as a prostitute. I'll give you a young goat. And Tamar says, how can I trust you to give me the young goat? Why don't you give me something else? Why don't you let me hang on to your driver's license until the goat actually comes through? Verse 18, he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. Some unique identifying things about Judah that only Judah would have. Only Judah would be able to give to her. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Judah is an absolute nightmare of a fool in this passage, friends. He gave away his identifying information, but even more foolish than that, was he gave himself to a prostitute. He gave himself to a woman who wasn't his wife. And the situation's just even more foolish for us than it was for him because we see that he's not just with a prostitute, but he's with his daughter-in-law. I warned you about your kids. It's fine. You can still send me downstairs. It's just going to get weirder. So, middle of verse 18, so he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away. And taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. So Tamar has taken the signet ring, the identifying information, Judah's driver's license, and she's fled. And Judah's servants come, and he's like, well, I got the goat. Where's the prostitute? And he asked the men, verse 21, he asked the men of the place, where's the cold prostitute who was at in name at the roadside? And they said to her, no cold prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I've not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cold prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. It's almost like Judah's trying to justify himself, saying, like, I haven't done anything wrong. Try to give her the goat. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. 
And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Just again, friends, we've seen this throughout the book of Ruth, but we see it here. The way that women were mistreated in this culture was absolutely horrendous. And these stories are in the Bible, not as, a, not as an approval of them, but as a condemnation of them. Judah's not being presented in very good light here, in case you're not aware. He's not the hero. None of his actions are meant to serve as an example to you. Verse 25, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Ah, there it is. There was a reason we were reading this weird story. The name Perez means breach or breakthrough. And he's given that name because he broke through the most unlikely of circumstances in order to secure the right of the firstborn. It's a heartwarming story, right? It's wonderful. The Bible's not boring, guys. We're getting all this out of a genealogy. And it's so interesting that this heartwarming story, this wonderful story about a woman sleeping with her father-in-law, seducing her father-in-law, it's so interesting that this heartwarming story is what the women of Bethlehem call to mind at Ruth's baby shower. In Ruth chapter 4, verse 12. They said to Ruth, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. It's like saying, oh, sweet baby, sweet, sweet baby. Maybe he'll be famous one day like Ted Bundy. Maybe he'll be a a great world leader like Mussolini. Friends, that's that's an absurd thing to say. The point, why on earth would they say that? Why on earth would the, would the women bless Boaz and Ruth by saying this? Why on earth would the genealogy of Ruth, the end of this wonderful story, why would it begin with Perez? Because the point is that God's grace works through unlikely situations and circumstances in a bit of a breakthrough or a breach. Think about the unlikely circumstances in Perez's life. Judah's firstborn dies, leaving no one to provide for Tamar, leaving no one to preserve the family line of Judah. Tamar is left a widow. Tamar's mistreated time and time again. Even the conception of Perez was immoral. This is not the makings of a hero, friends. And then even at the last possible moment, he slides in before his twin brother to secure the birthright, the firstborn right, to receive the promises given to Judah. 
And that's the resolution to the story. Out of all of these unlikely circumstances, God is working to bless his people. He's working to save people like Perez. Perez is blessed as the firstborn son of Judah. The firstborn son of Judah, by the way, is a really big deal. Because later on in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 49, there's some stunning promises given to all of the children of of Jacob, including Judah. And Judah, even though he's not the firstborn, again, unlikely blessings going to unlikely people, even though Judah's not the firstborn, his father prophesies over him in Genesis 49.10 and declares, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people's. So a promise is given to Judah that from his family line would come a king, someone who can hold a scepter, hold a ruler's staff. A king would come from the family line of Judah and tribute would come to him. Taxes would come to him from all of the foreign nations that he had captured and conquered. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The peoples, as in distinct ethnic groups. All of the peoples, all of the nations of the earth are coming and bowing before this king from the line of Judah. That's the promise given to Judah. That's the promise that his firstborn son would inherit. And his firstborn son, by the absolutely astounding and unlikely circumstances, is Perez. Perez is getting this promise. God is able to work through absolutely unlikely circumstances. Think about the unlikely circumstances in Ruth, in Boa, and lots of names. Think about the unlikely circumstances in Perez's life. And think about the unlikely circumstances in the book of Ruth. There was a famine that, that caused the Israelites to flee their, their homeland, and they go to Moab of all places. Moab was the wrong end of town, guys. Three men died, three women widowed, Naomi's unable to conceive, Ruth is barren for ten years, Ruth follows her mother-in-law to a foreign land, she's left her mother and father and her family and everything she's known behind. That's some unlikely circumstances, right? And yet there's resolution, because the story ends with the widow receiving a husband, the family name being preserved, and the barren women are provided... A child. It's incredible. God's grace is able to break through. Like Perez broke through, sliding into third to steal the blessing of the firstborn. God's grace is able to break through the most unlikely of circumstances. And that's not an abstract idea, friends. God's grace is able to break through the most unlikely circumstances in your life. And so, friends, we have no need to worry about the future. Saying things like, this situation is hopeless, is incompatible with the Christian worldview. Because we believe in a Savior who died and conquered death itself, rose again. Not even death is a hopeless situation because our God's grace works through unlikely situations, the most unlikely situations. 
Friends, you have no need to worry about your future because God is able to bless and save people with messed up backgrounds like Perez. God gives stunning promises of grace to sinful people like Judah. God is able to give life to a barren woman. God is able to give a baby to an aged woman. God's grace is able to break through the most unlikely circumstances, and so we have no need to worry about the future. And at the same time, we have no need to worry about the past. No matter what's happened in your life, maybe your situation makes the story of Tamar look G-rated. Maybe your story is full of even more brokenness than Perez and Judah and Ruth. Whether you've been sinned against, abused, or taken advantage of, or if you've sinned against others, God's grace is able to redeem not just your future, but your past. We believe that God is sovereign. We believe that he's in control of everything. That leaves no room for regret, friends. God's grace is able to break through the most unlikely of circumstances. God is going to take the nasty coal of your past and press it and work it to be the most beautiful diamond and testimony of his grace. He's able to make lemonade out of the sourest of lemons. So friends, we have no reason to worry about the future. We have no reason to worry about the past because our God is king and he is in control. And so from Genesis onward, God's people are looking for a son of Judah, a son of Perez, who would sit on a throne, rule over their people with righteousness and justice, and also rule over all of the earth. And that's where the genealogy at the end of Ruth brings us. Ruth ends with a genealogy to show us the significance of the story. I mean, Ruth's been an interesting story, right? I mean, like, there's, there's this woman and foreign relations and, and romance and suspense and, and a lot of questions, some mystery. It's an interesting story, right? But why is it in the Bible? The genealogy tells us why. Because from Ruth and the unlikely circumstances of her life, God is raising up a king from the line of Judah who would rule over all of the nations. So keep reading. These are the generations of Perez. Ruth 4. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab was the father-in-law of Moses' brother Aaron. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon was the head of the tribe of Judah during the wilderness period in the book of Numbers. He was a family and military leader. This is like the A-listers being listed in this genealogy. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon was the husband of Rahab, the prostitute, 
who hid the Israelite spies when they first entered the promised land in Joshua chapter 2. You see? You see what's happening here? Rahab, a woman, a Canaanite woman, is all of a sudden in this family tree? That's interesting. It almost seems like the obedience of the peoples is coming, entering into the family line of Judah because he's the king, not just of Israel, but of all the nations. That sure is interesting. Verse 21, Salmon fathered Boaz. He's been the epic hero and redeemer of the book of Ruth. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Now that is an ending, friends. That is cool. That's amazing. But why is it amazing? What on earth does that have to do with anything? The story of David is central to the plot of Scripture. And the book of Ruth is in our Bibles to support that story, that greater story about King David, and to show where he came from. So who is David? David was the the second king of Israel, and by far and away, he was the greatest king of Israel. The Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart. He loved the Lord with all of his heart. He followed God. He ruled with righteousness and justice. He wasn't a perfect king. He wasn't a perfect hero. He sinned in ways that are just as spectacular as Judah did in Genesis 38. But he is an astounding king. And so, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a promise to David. And it's a clarification of the promise that he gave to his ancestor Judah. He, he promises David that one of his sons would rule on a throne in Jerusalem, not just for a short time, but for all time. And from that moment, all of Israel's hope is hanging on that thread, that a son of David would come to rule, not just over Israel, but for all nations. And not just for a short time, but forever. And not just for a little bit of good, but for a perfect peace that lasts forever. All of Israel's looking forward to that day when all of their oppressions would stop and all of their enemies would be silenced and all of their poverty would be healed and all of their crimes would be stopped. There's an example of that in Isaiah 11. People like to read this passage around Christmas time. Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse, remember, David's father. And they're saying, even though this tree, David's family tree, looked like it's been chopped down, there's going to be a shoot that shoots up from it. There's going to be some life resurrecting from that stump. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So it's saying that a son of David is coming, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. God's going to empower him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So a king is coming, a son of David is coming, and God is going to be with him. God is going to help him. God is going to give him unparalleled wisdom and unparalleled strength. Verse 3, And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what the eyes see, 
or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Friends, the hope here is that the son of David would come and he wasn't just going to be a mighty military ruler steamrolling everyone to accomplish his agenda, but that the son of David would be a kind and gentle ruler. And he would look at the poor not with condemnation, but with mercy and say, I'm going to help you. He would look to orphans and widows and say, your situation is heartbreaking. I'm not going to leave you here. I'm going to help you. I'm going to judge with perfect peace and equity and justice. That's what God's justice means, friends. A large portion of God's justice isn't just his punishment of sinners, although that is a reality. A large portion of God's justice is his care for people who are overlooked in this life. And so again, friends, if you feel like Tamar, if you feel overlooked in this life, if you feel oppressed and downtrodden and overlooked and abused and taken advantage of, the Son of David is coming with good news for you, friends. He's not leaving you alone. He will decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And... Verse 4 continues, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Meaning his word will speak judgment on all of the nations. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. And sometimes we read passages like that and we're like, well, that's a little harsh. But is it really? Because in our, in our hearts, we know that we want evil to be stopped forever. We want people who commit injustices to be punished. We want justice to reign. We want every evil to be stopped. We want every right to be rewarded. And so it's very, very good news that God is coming to destroy every ounce of evil in the world. From the abuse of women like Tamar experienced to the racism that, that, ta- that Ruth may have experienced coming back from Moab, from widows and orphans being left alone, God is coming back to make every wrong right. He will rule with justice. Verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. What is it that supports the reign of this son of David? It's his own goodness, that he is a good and gracious and mighty and righteous and faithful king. The king, the king, friends, the king is coming. And he will be all powerful. And yet he doesn't use this power for his own advantage. They say that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. The only person in the history of the world who will actually have absolute power over all nations for all time is the son of David. And he doesn't use that power for his own advantage. His absolute power doesn't corrupt him. And so friends, again, if you are overlooked in this life or hurting in any way, Know that God has promised that a king is coming. The son of David is coming to make every wrong right and every sad thing untrue and every tear wiped away. 
You are not forgotten. And you never will be. A thousand years after David, God makes these promises to David, and it's a thousand years later that another king is born. And his name is Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 1, we get another genealogy. Not the family line of David or Perez, although they are included, but the family line of Jesus. And wouldn't you know who's in Jesus' family line? Perez, Judah, Boaz, Ruth, David. Jesus is the son of David. He has finally come, and he will come again. I'm going to invite the music team up now. Friends, Christ, Jesus Christ, is the son of David. And yet, he's so much more glorious than David. Matthew 22. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Christ, figure from the Old Testament, equivalent with the word Messiah, or anointed one. It means the son of David. And so Jesus says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him his Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? You see what Jesus is doing here? He's saying the son of David is so much greater and more spectacular than David ever could be. This is the only time that the sequel has been better than the original. Jesus is the son of David, and he's so much more glorious than David. Friends, Jesus is the son of David, and he's come to rule over all the nations. Also in the book of Matthew, Matthew 15, 22. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David! My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. In Matthew 15, there's this story of a woman, a Gentile woman. She's not from the family of Israel. She has no claim to to the son of David. And yet she flees to Jesus because she knows that he is the son of David. She knows that he has come to reign, not just over Israel, but over all nations. And not just to reign and to rule, but to bring healing. She says, I've got a burden and I know where to bring it. To the son of David who has come to make everything right. And friends, Jesus Christ is the son of David because he is the savior king. Matthew 21. And the crowds that went before him, Jesus is entering into Jerusalem where he would die on a cross. And as he's entering in, the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! Friends, that phrase, Hosanna, It's a plea to a king. Save us. I need you. Save us. It's like drowning in a pool, throwing up your hand and saying, save me to the lifeguard. That's what Hosanna means. 
Jesus is walking into Jerusalem and all the people see him and they scream and they fall to their faces and they, they hit the ground and they scream, save us, Hosanna, son of David, come and make everything right. And that's what he did in Jerusalem, friends. When he died on a cross, that's what the son of David did? No, 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 he's not supposed to die. He's supposed to reign forever. But no, Jesus reigns in a subversive way. He dies on a cross for the sins of the rebels. What a backwards kingdom. What a crazy king. What kind of a king would do that? Die not for his loyal subjects, but for the rebels. People like me and you. And that's what Jesus, the son of David, came to do. To die on a cross for sinners. Friends, Jesus is not the king of people who are good enough. Jesus came to save rebellious, broken, disturbed, sinful, jacked up people like me and you. So friends, come to him today and find life. He's a savior king, and you can trust him to bring hope into the most hopeless of situations because not even death itself could stop his grace from working. Jesus Christ conquered death itself, rose from the dead, and he's still alive today, and he's still seated on the throne. He still is the son of David. He still is reigning. He still is working to make everything right and every sad thing untrue. He is the son of David. He is the king. And he's coming to heal. So friends, everybody in this room is a sinner and a sufferer. So sinners, know that the son of Judah extends grace to unlikely people. Oh, friends, don't hide. You think a God that includes stories like Tamar and Judah in his word would be repulsed by your sin? No. God is not running away from broken people. He's running towards them, and he's running towards you today. He's saying, you don't need to hide anymore. So friends, don't hide. Confess your sins to God and to others. And friends, Jesus promises that whenever you confess your sins to him, you will find healing, not condemnation. John 3, 17. Jesus came not to condemn, but to save all who believe in him. So friends, if you need to confess sin today, or if you need help because sin is so deeply ingrained in your heart, you don't know how to stop, We're going to have prayer counselors in the back of the room today. And so if you need somebody to pray with or somebody to confess your sin to, go and speak in the back of the room to one of us. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to hug you and pray with you. We're not going to condemn you. We're going to do our best to care for you and to point you to Jesus who died for your sins and rose again. Don't let any shame stop you, friends, from confessing your sins because we need Jesus. So if you're a sinner, know that God's grace extends to unlikely people. And if you are a sufferer, know that the son of David extends grace in unlikely circumstances. Friends, don't despair from your past or don't despair based on the future. Dare to have hope. 
dare to come and to plead with the son of David who came to make everything right, not just in an abstract way, but in your own life. Friends, I'm going to invite you, if you're suffering today, to come to the back of the room and pray and be prayed for as a bold declaration that you believe the son of David has not abandoned you and he never will. And he really is able to bring hope into the most hopeless of situations. Friends, God's grace is able to break through the most unlikely of scenarios. So come to him and find life and healing. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you so much for your word. And we pray that it would bear fruit in our lives. God, I pray that you would just press on all of our hearts to know your care. That, you, that no person would leave this room wondering if Jesus really cares because you've proven it when you died for our sins. Oh God, help us to flee to you, to trust you, to cling to you alone. We praise you because you are the son of David and we give all our allegiance to your throne and your kingdom. It's for your name name we pray. Amen.